Tonight we're going to continue our study of Job, and the plan is to conclude the book. Last week, or actually two weeks ago, we went through the first 37 chapters. I was telling a friend tonight as I was on my way up here, he said, what are you doing tonight? I said, well, I'm going to conclude study of Job tonight is my plan. He said, oh, how, when did you start? And I said, last week. He said, so you're doing several years? I said, no, I did 37 chapters two weeks ago, and I'm going to finish it up tonight. And he just laughed. <laughs> so, but that's the, that's the plan. To, to recap, Job is the first of five books known as what kind of books in the Bible? No, I mean, it's a narrative, but that's not what we're talking about. No. Wisdom book. I could see, I could see the, the light going in Robin's face, and I was like, okay, she's going to say it, and she's going to have to say it loud because I can't hear. So, yeah, they're wisdom books. <laughs> well, you got to remember, Scott has a hard time hearing you, and I've got hearing aids. And to keep this thing from ringing because I've got this earpiece with a microphone, I've got to turn that one down, so... Talking this here. No. <laughs> okay. So it's, they are, they're books of wisdom. And I approached it, I approached this study from the kinds of conversations that we see in the book of Job. So there were several kinds of conversations. What were the first two conversations or who were the first two conversations in the book of Job between? Say it again. Satan and the Lord, yeah. And the conversations were about just kind of general things going on. You know, Satan said, I've been walking to and fro across the earth, basically looking for someone to destroy and devour and steal. And God said, consider my man, Job. And he said, he's a righteous man. What was Satan's response to God saying and bragging on Job that Job was a righteous man? What was Satan's response, basically? Of course he's righteous. You've given him everything. He wants for nothing. Okay, so after the first conversation, what did then, what did God then allow Satan to do to Job after the first conversation? Yeah, he said you can, you can touch his stuff, but you can't touch the man. He had limits on, on what Satan could do. And so in a, in a single day, and as you read the scripture, as you read the passage, it sounds like maybe in a matter of minutes that he lost his camels, he lost his oxen, he lost his female donkeys, he lost you know, all of his livestock. And then the last thing is, someone came in and said, your seven sons, your three daughters are dead. I don't think we could manufacture or make up any worse set of circumstances of calamity that hit one person than that. I, I can't imagine it being any worse. I'm sure it could be, but it's bad enough. And what was Job's response to hearing that all 10 of his children had just died? What was his response? He worshiped. He tore his clothes, threw dust in the air. He fell on his face before a living and holy God and he worshiped. I don't know if I could do that. I hope I could. 
honestly pray that I never get in that situation to see if I need to. But you know, the calamities that we go through in life today in Greenville, Texas are just as serious and they're just as painful and they're just as bad as what Job went through. And so the encouragement through this is regardless of what we go through, we can follow the pattern that Job established. We can worship a holy God. Because we, we, we talked about three, there were three basic morals of the story from, from two weeks ago. Do you remember what those are? The first one was about suffering. Okay, we often suffer. The second one had to do with about with, with understanding. You remember what that one was? Yes, sometimes we understand. And, you know, as we think about it, it's, it's almost like probably more times than not, we don't fully understand. We can use some deductive reasoning about things, but we, we don't often understand what's going on. And then the third point was about trust. And what did we say about trust last, last time? We can always trust God. And that's where we're, that's where we're going to camp tonight. Um, okay, so that was, that was the first set of, of, of circumstances of, of conversation. Now, one more, one more question on, on this, not final exam, but semester exam. <laughs> Why did Job suffer the things that he suffered? Because he was righteous. See, way too often we always think, well, and Job's friends were the same way. You sinned, therefore you're suffering. But it's very clear in Scripture in several places throughout Job that Job suffered because he was a righteous man. Job suffered because God bragged on Job to Satan. And Satan challenged God. And God allowed Satan then to, you can take away his things, but you can't touch the man. Second conversation, the result was you can touch him, but you can't kill him. So we find Job then, a, and I'll use the same descriptors I did two weeks ago, sitting in the ashes, just a pile of bloody pus. Okay, because he had boils from the top of his head to the bottom of his feet. He was scraping them with, with, with a shard of pottery and basically trying to get relief and cutting them open. So it was just a mess to the point that his friends didn't even recognize him. So there was a series of conversations between his friends and Job, and their point was, as I said earlier, I already gave it away, if you'll repent, then God will restore you. So they went through this long series of conversations, and Job just became more and more frustrated and none of those things worked. All right, now, tonight, we're going to look at trusting God. So my question to start with is, what does trust look like? How would you, well, let me back up. How would you define trust? Huh? Say it again. 
Repentance. Dependence. Thank you. I told you I'm hard hearing. Uh, so the ones in the front have to help the ones in the back and help me here. All right. Yeah, dependence. All right, let, me, let, let me demonstrate something for you. If I can get this apart. There it goes. All right. Everybody knows what this is, right? It's not a trick question. Wrong. It's a chair. How would you demonstrate, or how would I demonstrate that I trust this chair to hold me up off the floor? I sit down in it, okay? Yeah, without checking, perfect answer. I didn't check security, so I sit down. Nobody built a breakaway chair, so I'm okay. You know, one of these days, I, I, you know, I don't know if I'll ever do it, but I've thought about building a breakaway chair just for a demonstration. Um, but I, I really won't do that. Uh, but that's a picture of trust. Um, back in September, I, I was reminded of another element of trust in my life. Um, it, it really ties into this in, in a neat way. Uh, I went to Kazakhstan with John Hicks and Brad Naren Gallion and discovered that a perfect team going to Kazakhstan is one counselor and three engineers. Uh, you wouldn't think that would be a, it seems, almost sounds like kind of a weird mix, but it was a perfect team that God put together in, in many, many ways. And I, I wouldn't trade for that trip. Um, but one of the things that I, that I noticed as we were sitting in the airport waiting and, and we see this great big, this A380 Airbus plane that there's two engines on it. Each one is bigger than the apartment that Kendra and I had when we first got married. I mean, massive thing. And they're talking about all the aspects of the, the design and the building. And, you know, I thought, you know, I don't really know much about aerodynamics and what causes lift. And it was very interesting to, to hear them. And I thought, you know, knowing these things doesn't impact my level of trust. Because not knowing those things, I would walk down, you know, down the ramp. I would walk into that hollow, hollow cylindrical aluminum tube and strap myself into a seat and never, never once question the designer, the builder, or the flight crew. I trusted them. I didn't even know who they were. Okay, so that's a picture. That's another picture of trust, of not knowing but following the guidance that, and in this case, it, that God provides for us. So that's another picture of trust. Um, about three weeks ago, one of my seven sensible men that speak into my life that I'm, I'm blessed to have commented regarding the study of Job and how it, how it corresponds to everyday life. And he said this, he said, Morris, we often get distracted by the present things in life versus being grounded in the promises of God and what he holds for us in our future. Job held the hill that he had been given. In his troubles, he remained steadfast, faithful, God-honoring, even in the midst of so much pain. Wow, that's good. So... What kind of things in our lives today in Greenville, Texas can distract us from being well-grounded in God and in his truth? 
What kind of things in our life today can distract us? Okay, political stuff, unrest, not, know, not knowing what is going to happen in January or if our country's still going to be open or if we're going to close. I mean, there's just all kinds of stuff you can get tied up in. Uh, so political unrest, what else can distract us? Mm. Putting our faith in man and not God. How many here has ever done that? Come on. All of us have at some point. Um, what other kind of things can distract us then? Yeah, financial problems. What about illness? The person sitting next to you in the next cubicle or the person on the road in front of you that's doing something they shouldn't be doing or you don't think they should be doing. Um, death of a family member. Terminal illness. I mean, all kinds of things can distract us from focusing on being grounded and remaining steadfast and faithful in God's word. So I want to focus just for a minute then on those two concepts of faithful and faithless. In the first half of the book of Job, or the first 37 chapters we covered, who represented the faithless? Job's wife, yeah, she, she's kind of the pinnacle in there, or one of, one of several. Yeah, she, she had a real break in faith with, with the statement that she made because of the things that she had lost also. I mean, it doesn't excuse what she did, but it kind of gives us reason and pause to see where she was at. Uh, who else were the faithless? His friends, yeah. Bildad, Eliphaz, Zophar, and even though Elihu spoke rightly, he still didn't understand the circumstances, and so the advice that he gave was off, was off target. Okay, so we know who the faithless were represented in the, those first 37 chapters in the book of Job. Who were the faithful? Ultimately, God. Job remained faithful even though he questioned you know, and he, he spoke, and he, he was trying to speak, and he was speaking in his pain. He was, he was counted faithful, but even as you read some of the things that he said, it was like, eh, it kind of seems like he's you know, waffling a little bit, but he honestly didn't. Um, but ultimately, God is the one that is faithful throughout this thing. Now, we're going to look at point three in terms of trusting. When there is a challenge, when there is a, tr a trial that we go through, who do we typically in our human nature turn to that we believe we can trust? In our human nature, who, who will we turn to? Yeah. Somebody say Karen. Okay. <laughs> okay. Let's break it down a little bit. Who will women typically turn to in, in a trial? Okay, husband or friend, okay? Who will men typically turn to? Self. <laughs> you know, we, we just keep it right here because nobody can do it better than I can. That, that's a human perspective. That's not reality in what I'm saying. Please don't understand. We can probably expunge that from the recording. 
<laughs> okay. But we, we tend to turn to either other people or ourselves. Okay. Let's, let's again examine Job's situation. Can Job trust himself in his circumstance? Okay, I'm saying no. How do we know that he can't trust himself? He has nothing left. He couldn't stop what happened. You know, he's got nothing except blood and pus <laughs> and some, some friends that are speaking. Okay. Can he trust his wife? No. Well, I don't know what she said. Can he trust his livestock? They're gone. Can he trust his children? They're gone. Can he trust his friends? No, he cannot. He turns to the only one in whom he can show absolute trust, and that is God. And that's what we're going to look at now. In verse 38, I'm sorry, in chapter 38, God now speaks to Job. You know, something that occurred to me today, it said that God said, I wonder if, only Job heard God at this point or if his friends and all the rubberneckers that were around because there were other people just standing around listening to what was going on. I wonder if they heard God or if it was just Job. We, we don't know that. But God asks Job some very difficult questions in chapter 38. For example, in verse 4, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. And what did Job say? Crickets. <laughs> no answer. Okay. Verse 18. Have you comprehended the expanse of the earth? Declare if you know all this. Again, crickets. Verse 33. Do you know the ordinances of heaven? Can you establish their rule on the earth? Verse 34 and 35, can you lift up your voice to the clouds that a flood of waters may cover you? Can you send forth lightnings that they may go and say to you, here we are? Job's answer to each one of these questions, crickets. There's no answer. He had no verbal reply. He had no response possible. He was silent. There are numerous questions that are truly rhetorical and they really only have one answer in various forms. Nope, none, no one, nada, nothing. Okay, but God asks the questions and he does not wait for a response. He continues. In chapter 39, God speaks to Job of his compassion over all of creation. The first four verses of chapter 39. Do you know when the mountain goats give birth? Do you observe the calving of the does? Can you number the months that they fulfill? Do you know the time when they give birth, when they crouch, when they bring forth their offspring and are delivered of their young? Their young ones become strong. They grow up in the open. They go out and do not return to them. Now, does Job have any reason to charge God with any type of unkindness toward creation? 
He doesn't charge God with anything. There's nothing to charge God with. In other words, God is saying, I have compassion over all of my creation. You don't know these things. I do. You can't control these things. I can and I do. You know, we're seeing and we're experiencing the last several days, the last week or so, an aspect of God's compassion to his creation with this wet stuff that's falling out of the clouds. You know, God's nurturing his creation. He sent the rain. And I'm always, I'm always amazed at how many days we have rain before someone starts complaining about the rain. It's usually the second day. Um, but that, that's a perfect picture of God's compassion on creation. He sends the rain to nurture his creation. God ordered all of that. And, and based on what God reveals about his compassion over all creation, does Job have any reason to charge God with any kind of unkindness in his dealing with Job himself? Does he have any reason to charge God with anything? No, he doesn't. God again ordered all of that. And Job is realizing that as he's hearing from God. In chapter 40, verses 1 and 2, And the Lord said to Job, Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer it. So what is God asking for at that moment? In fact, he commands. Yeah, he's saying, I want an answer. He said, you answer me. In verses 3 through 5 of Job chapter 40, then Job answered the Lord and said, behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once and I will not answer twice, but I will proceed no further. So what is Job's response to God's command of give me an answer? Yeah. He's, oh, sorry. He said, I have none. I have no answer. I, I spoke once. I spoke twice. And he's like, I'm not opening my mouth a third time. <laughs> you know, you kind of read that in there. He had nothing to say. Job submits in humble silence. I think that's, a, I think that's a, an important point for us to think about. When we're going through trials and we're asking questions and God reveals his majesty to us and his power and his control and his dominion and his sovereignty and his grace and his mercy and you just go through the list of attributes, we should respond in humble silence. I think first of all, because he simply chose to respond and speak to us. And he does. Secondly, like Job, we really have nothing to say. We think we do, or at least I think I do. God doesn't stop there. I mean, it sounds to me like, you know, in the beginning of chapter 40, Job's got it. And he, and he really had it before 
but he's got it better now than he had it. He, he, he understands better. God continues, though, and he uses the example of Leviathan. In chapter 41, verses 1 through 9, can you draw out Leviathan with a fish hook or press down his tongue with a cord? Can you put a rope in his nose and pierce his jaw with a hook? Will he make any pleas to you? Will he speak to you soft words? Will he make a covenant with you to take him for your servant forever? Will you play with him as with a bird? Will you put him on a leash for your girls? Will traders bargain over him? Will they divide him up among their merchants? Can you fill his skin with harpoons or his head with fishing spears? Lay your hands on him. Remember the battle. You will not do it again. You know, and I love that verse. <laughs> it's like, you think you got it? Try it. You know, it's, it's, you're not going to do it. You're not going to want a second dose. Verse 9, behold, the hope of a man is false. He is laid low even in the sight of him, speaking of Leviathan. So what is God saying to Job through speaking about Leviathan? What is he reminding Job of? God is all-powerful and Job is what? Not. <laughs> yeah, and you feel, I mean, it's, it's not anything. Job is just not. He's, he's continuing to speak to convince Job of his own weakness and his own lack of strength and power over anything in God's kingdom. In verse 10, the first part of it goes goes with the, the first nine verses. No one is so fierce that he dare to stir him up. Talking about Leviathan. But then the last part. Who then is he who can stand before me? So what does God reveal in the last part of verse 10 to Job? And then to us. What does he reveal about himself? Because who spoke Leviathan into existence? God. He's like, if you don't want to tangle with Leviathan, I mean, and, and again, going back to verse 8, lay your hands on him, remember the battle. You won't do it again. And God is reminding him, who then is he who can stand before me? If you can't stand before Leviathan, as Corey pointed out, you cannot stand before me. So he speaks again to convince Job of God's majesty, his sovereignty, his absolute power and control over all of creation. And basically the remainder of chapter 41, God continues to convince Job that he has no power over Leviathan, therefore he has no power over God. Now we get to, to chapter 42. And here Job answers God. beginning in verse 1 of chapter 42. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. 
Hear and I will speak. I will question you and, and you make it known to me. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. So what is Job's response to the almighty God? Say it again. He's humble. Yeah, humbleness. And then what does he do? He repents. Again, keep in mind what the word repent means. Somebody give me a definition of repentance. Okay, a turn. What kind of turn? Huh? Yeah, it's turning away from sin. And it looks like this. I'm glad nobody's sitting over here. If I'm walking this way towards sin and God stops me, is this repentance? No. Is this repentance? It's the beginning of it. What is repentance then? As Corey pointed out, it's moving this way. It's moving in exactly the opposite direction of where you were going. So when Job repented, he didn't just stop. And he didn't just stop and partially turn. He stopped and fully turned and went the opposite direction. Now, I I think it's important to talk about a full turn. Because if, and we know that Jesus said, no one puts his hand to the plow and looks back. Because if I'm walking and I'm looking back, what's about to happen? I'm about to run over the podium, and there's, I'm, I'm going to have a wreck. Okay, we have, we have to fully turn our eyes moving away from the sand, but focused on God. And that, that's where we always have to be in that. So Job repents, and he bows before the holy, quite hot, holy, perfect God. And the picture of that is what happens every time any person in the New Testament met the risen Savior. Think about that. When they encountered the risen Savior, they fell on their face. When we encounter, when we encounter our risen Savior, we bow before a living and holy God. And that's, that's the picture in Job of what God requires in that, in that meeting our risen Savior. Now in chapter 42 in verse 7, after the Lord had spoken these things to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz, the Temanite, now here, here are the three friends Get a dose of God. The Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My anger burns against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. Now therefore, take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer up a burnt offering for yourselves. And my servant Job shall pray for you For I will accept his prayer not to deal with you according to your folly. For you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. 
So Eliphaz the Timonite and Bildad the Shuhite and Zophar the Naamathite went and did what the Lord had told them. And the Lord accepted Job's prayer. But what did God require of Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar? What did he require of them? Hmm? A sacrifice. Yeah. He said, if you make the offering and that's all you're going to do, it's not going to work. He was only willing to hear from Job. So what kind of position did that put Job in? A mediator. Um, with what kind of power? Hmm? Well, but in, in Job's thinking, if, if I pray for him, God's going to hear my prayer. If I don't pray for him, they're toast. You know, and of course, right, there's no power because it all comes from God. But how easy could it have been for me to go? <laughs> yeah, you guys thought you had it. I got the power. Be so easy for human nature to just slip in there. But again, I believe it points to Job's heart and his righteousness that he prayed for his friends. Man, that's sweet. Because I had to really examine myself and think, eh, how many times have I, uh, well, twice this last week, <laughs> had to get real honest, you know that I was wishing for, you know, something else. Sunday when Kendra and I left here and, and we'd gone to lunch with our kids and, and I went, ran another errand and Kendra got home before I did. And when I got home, there were 10 bags of trash in the bar ditch across from our house, scattered, you know, just a mess. Somebody just thrown trash out. So I went and picked it up and I found a check with a, you know, a cancel check from Walmart with a receipt. So I knew, and it was, the person's name, phone number, address, driver's license numbers. And I'm thinking, ooh, <laughs> I, can, I can hammer somebody. Okay, that didn't happen. I did drive by the house, and I had to remind myself, what am I doing? You know, and I, so I had to back up again. So I was like, okay. It's real easy for us to get into that position of wanting to nail someone can't do that if we're going to walk before God in a righteous manner that honors and glorifies the father then we have to take the position that Job did his friends offered him nothing but really really bad advice and he accepted their offering their sacrifice and he prayed to the father verses 10 through 17 wrap up this book the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he had prayed for his friends the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before then came to him all his brothers and sisters who had known him before and ate bread with him in his house and they showed him sympathy and comforted him for all the evil that the Lord had brought upon him we see that 
again. Why did Job suffer everything that he suffered? Hmm? God allowed it. It was God's design. And each of them gave him a piece of money and a ring of gold. And the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. He had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, 1,000 female donkeys. He also had seven sons and three daughters. And he called the name of his first daughter, Jemima, the name of his second, Keziah, and the name of the third, Karen Huppock. And in all the land, there were no women so beautiful as Job's daughters. And their father gave them an inheritance among their brothers. That's unusual. The inheritance always went to the oldest son and then the other sons in less amounts. And the daughters didn't receive an inheritance from the father. These three did. After this, Job lived 140 years and he saw his sons and his sons' sons four generations. And Job died an old man and full of days. So what does God do in Job's life? He restores him. And why did it say he restored him? Prayed for his friends. He did what God had told him to do again. So obedience and there's blessings. And it's not a prosperity gospel, so don't go there. But he was obedient and God blessed him. So the moral of the story of Job, often we suffer. Sometimes we understand. We can always trust God. We can always trust God. So what does trust look like in the everyday life of Greenville, Texas folks? What kind of calamities we can go through? How do we live in suffering not knowing why the suffering is there? And we all go through hard times. I mean, if, if we took the time and everybody wanted to be completely transparent and talk about the sufferings that we go through, we would all have stories. So how do we go through that suffering not knowing the outcome of the situation? What do we do? What's our answer? Mm-hmm. which is yeah making much of God and less of us that's what we do and that's what it looks like in Greenville Texas in 2013 2014 2015 2016 until Jesus comes back for us I, I started to I, I was I was tempted momentarily, to just read two emails 
tonight and just say, any questions? And end the study. Because yesterday there was an email that came out from my brother, Scott, talking about his sermon on Sunday that that God spoke through Scott about trust. I'm going to read an excerpt of that. I didn't ask Scott, Scott's permission, but I think he'd be okay. Is it all right? I'm going to do it anyway. <laughs> I'm bigger than you. All right. Proverbs 16.33 says, The lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. Do we have this kind of faith? Can we accept from God that which we think is not best? Trusting that his wisdom says that it is. Do we persevere with God when the lot seems to be set against us? Are we content to pray and make a plan and trust God with that plan? Or is contentment dependent upon absence of trial and heartache? Too often it is. Scott goes on to say, I don't think that the answers to such questions are meant to be considered flippantly. I want to encourage you to take some time this week searching out your life to see if there are any areas where you find it difficult to trust God. Consider those things that you have experienced where you would rather believe that you were temporarily forsaken than believe that God had any part in it. And as you identify these areas, I urge you to go to the Lord with all of your doubt, all of your concern, all of your anxiety, all of your confusion, all of your heartache, and let your requests be made known to God. Scripture says that when we do this, God will give us a peace that surpasses all understanding that will guard our hearts and our thoughts in Christ Jesus. Do you realize the gravity of what God is promising here? Supposing your circumstance in the very nightmarish midst of this trial that is filling you with confusion, suppose that in that moment God was revealed to you all understanding. For many of us, it's hard to imagine anything more calming than completely understanding the exact reason why something hard or bad or undesirable is happening. But God promises something that is actually better than that. Better than all understanding. And what he promises us is his peace. The fact that Scott wrote this ties perfectly into what God had allowed me to and led me to, to prepare in Job. There, is no, there was no collaboration between me and, and Scott. Even, even weeks ago as I was preparing the study on Job and Scott was preparing the sermon um, from Esther that, that God delivered through him Sunday morning. We didn't collaborate on what, what this was about. The fact that God is at work is evidenced so clearly when two brothers prepare two completely different lessons. And the message is identical. Not just close, but identical. So, trusting God, obviously, is a timely message for us right now, today, this week.
Let me close with Philippians 4, 6 and 7. It's the passage that Scott referred to in his email. God's word says, don't worry about anything, but instead, in everything by prayer and by petition, with thanksgiving, make your requests known to God. And God's peace, it goes beyond all understanding, like a sentinel will guard your hearts and your thoughts in Christ Jesus. Here's the email from today. I ain't got time to read it, but go back and read it. It punctuates everything that we've talked about in Job tonight. That our trust, regardless of what circumstances we're going through, we can go through the most horrible, ugly, terrible, nasty things that the world can throw against us. And our response is still to trust in God. And we do that on a daily basis. So let's pray. Father, I do thank you for revealing yourself to us. And Father, the fact that you've revealed these truths in several different venues this week provides an assurance, first of all, that you're a sovereign God, that you've got a timely message for us. Father, talking about suffering, talking about trials, talking about hard things in life, in and of itself is not uplifting. It's not encouraging. We may not walk out of here with a smile on our face because of what we've heard. But Father, how we can walk out of here is with joy in our heart, knowing that you are sovereign, almighty, all-knowing, all-powerful, all-loving God, and that we can trust you to carry us through the storm, to calm the storm, or to carry us beyond the storm. But we can trust you. Father, I pray for those who are here tonight that whatever circumstances they're going through, whatever trials they're going through, whatever, whatever life turmoils are impacting them now, Father, help each one here tonight walk with the very fact that we can trust you in every aspect of our lives. And you are worthy of trust because of who you are. You are worthy of trust because of the sacrifice that Jesus made on the cross to glorify you. You are worthy of the trust because the Holy Spirit lives within us and empowers us intercedes for us in prayer and that Jesus mediates for us in the throne room. Father, thank you for loving us. I pray your blessings on each family represented here tonight. Father, go with us from this place. Help us take this truth to a world that needs to hear that you are trustworthy. Father, again, I thank you for Jesus. And it's in his name I pray these things.